Bill, and I'm a pastoral resident here at Church on Mill. And I have the privilege of sharing God's word with you today while Chuck is away on sabbatical. Uh, last week, we started a new sermon series called Songs for Summer. We're going through some select psalms, and today we are going to look at Psalm 15. So feel free to turn there with me. If you're using the Bibles that are underneath your seats, you can find that on page 258. Our psalm today is fairly basic. It's short. wouldn't take you more than a minute, I wouldn't think, to read it, and even another minute to, to have a good idea of, of the gist of what David is saying. But it has some profound things to say. And as much time as we're able to give to it uh, this morning, I think we should. So um, before we even read it, let me give you four questions that I'm going to use to gather time through this psalm. It should be up on the screen. Uh, The first one is, can anyone draw near to the presence of God? And I realized a little bit later that that's kind of vague. By anyone, I mean, can, can everyone, can everyone draw near to the presence of God? Can just anyone draw near to the presence of God? Secondly, what kind of person can draw near to the presence of God? Third, how can we be the kind of person who can draw near to the presence of God? And then lastly, what benefit do we find in the presence of God? So those are the questions we're going to look at. And I'd like to invite Lisa up now to read the text for us. And then we'll spend the next 35 minutes looking at this psalm together. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill, he who walks blamelessly and does does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Thank you. So let's take a look at this first question. Can anyone draw near to the presence of God? I want to start out by telling you about the time that I almost died on a scuba diving trip. Uh, That is the most exciting part of that story. (laughs) It does not get more interesting from there. About five years ago, I was living in Thailand, and a friend and I decided we would go to the southern peninsula, right off the coast, and go scuba diving. This is a four-day trip, but the first two days, we didn't even step foot in the ocean because we had to be diving certified first. That meant that we had to pass a physical test and a written test showing that we had some knowledge of the the diving equipment. So for the physical test, we had to swim 200 yards in a swimming pool and then tread water for 10 minutes uh, without resting. That's where I almost died. It was was in the swimming pool. (laughs) I told you. I made it, but I laid on my back for the better part of an hour, just trying to catch my breath. I do not fault the scuba diving company for nearly killing me. 
They had to make sure I was fit to dive. There are wonderful, beautiful treasures underneath the ocean's surface. But it's also dangerous, and there's real perils for someone who is a poor swimmer or doesn't know how to use the equipment. Um, it's not a good place to be, 50 or 100 feet under the ocean's water if, if you don't have those things. My point in that story is simply this. There are certain places on this earth which not everyone is fit, fit to thrive in or enjoy. There are mountain summits that cannot be rich, reached by everyone and whose views cannot be enjoyed by everyone, whose views might be a joy to one but a terror to another. That's what we're looking at today in Psalm 15, such a place. Verse 1, the tent of the Lord, the holy hill. This place welcomes one kind of person, but not another. Not because there's anything special about the place in itself, but because in that place, God's presence dwells. So we're looking at this first question, can anyone draw near to the presence of God? And the answer I'm going to give is no. I get that right from the text that we're looking at. The fact that David calls this place a holy hill gives us a hint that not everyone can draw near to this place. It's holy. It's set apart to God. It's not common. It can't be mixed with what is common. The second hint that makes it fairly obvious is the fact that David answers his own question, who can draw near to this place, by describing a certain kind of person. That presumes that one kind of person can come near and another kind of person cannot. Now this is somewhat offensive language, I think, uh, especially in our current cultural waters. Uh, but our text is clear that the place of God is a discriminating place. It receives one person and it rejects another. Blesses this, curses that. Nobody knew this better than the guy that wrote our psalm today, David. He had seen with his own eyes the discriminating power of God. During David's time, the presence of God was represented by something called the Ark of the Testimony. Uh, you might be familiar with this from the Bible or maybe from Indiana Jones. Uh, take your choice. But if you're not, it was basically a wooden box that was overlaid with gold. And inside this box, they kept the Ten Commandments, the instructions, the laws that God had given to Moses. And on top of the box was a lid called the mercy seat. And there were two angel-like figures called cherubim that were stationed on either side of the lid facing one another. And God would meet with his people in between the cherubim. This ark actually represented the footstool of God's throne. So if you look at Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, it should be on the screen. Uh, it says, God says, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandments for the people of Israel. So the ark of the testimony is where God's presence was represented there. So why am I talking about this ark? The reason is that after David had become king of Israel, he ordered that the ark would be brought up to Jerusalem where he was living. And he, he stationed a tent there 
on top of Mount Zion. And that was where the ark was to be placed. This is what David refers to in verse 1. It's the tent of the Lord, the holy hill. However, as the ark is coming up to Jerusalem, and all of God's people, all of Israel, are celebrating, they're worshiping, dancing before the ark, one of the oxen that was pulling the ark along stumbles. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Uzzah, one of the priests, reaches out his hand to touch the ark and steady it. And what happens to him? God strikes him dead, and the party is over. David is terrified. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And so he changes course, and they take the ark to the house of a man named Obed-Edom. And here's what's curious. Listen to this in verse 11. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So much so that when David hears about the blessings being poured out on his house, he calls for the ark to be brought back up to Jerusalem and put in the tent on the holy hill. So, the same ark, representing God's presence, brings death to one man and then blessing to another. Not everyone can abide in the presence of God. And that brings us to our next question. What kind of person can draw near to the presence of God? Or another way we might put that question, on what basis is God discriminating those whom between those whom he will accept and those whom he will reject, or whom he will bless and those, those whom he will curse. The main focus of our psalm today is answering that question. Do you want to know if you're the kind of person who can draw near to God and live in his presence without fear of him, who can come close to God and expect blessing from a holy God? That's what we're looking at today. It's an important question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? David's answer begins in verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Let's just stop right there for a moment. That single nine-word summary is the banner that would go over the person who can live in the presence of God walks blamelessly, does what is right. That's the person who can live in God's presence. Real quickly, why, why does such a person get to draw near to God? Because the Lord himself is righteous. So in, in Psalm eleven seven we see, For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Um, so his own character, which is righteous, it makes sense then that those who could draw near would be righteous. The righteous person has friendship with God. He can coexist with God and expect blessing rather than condemnation. So that's what we see in verse 2. It's very helpful. It tells us the basis of God's discrimination. It's righteousness. He's including some and he's excluding others on the basis of their righteousness. Are they the kind of person who does good or evil? Do they do what's right or wicked? But we need more than this. We need to know exactly 
what is the standard of God's righteousness? What does blamelessness consist of? How many people in this world would love for the answer to that question to just be a blank space that they could fill in whatever they like? There's something very appealing about being our own authority and deciding your own standards of morality. If you are able to create the standards, then you get to tailor them according to your own preferences. You can, you can pick and choose which moral laws you like, depending on what suits you best, and get rid of the ones that are inconvenient to the kind of life that you want to live. It's a huge temptation. It happens all the time today. Autonomy is a huge value in our culture. But God, and this is a reason I think that God can be so offensive to so many, he doesn't give us that option. He threatens our autonomy, and he says, here are the standards of righteousness. They're determined by my own character, my own will. And you may or may not agree with them, but you're held accountable to them. And they're for your good, and they're meant to give you life, whether you know it or not. What is the content of this righteousness? Let's take a look from this psalm. Uh, the second half of verse 2. He speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue. I was thinking about these verses and just imagining what would it be like if this kind of righteousness washed over the face of politics? Just imagine a, a Democrat thinking in her heart that a Republican had a great idea for a new policy and then publicly telling that to the media. They, this is a fantastic idea that the Republicans came up with. Or imagine a Republican who had great respect for the integrity and character of a Democrat and then publicly commended that person. Isn't this person, this is someone to model and emulate. It's hard to imagine that that would happen today. It goes against our nature. When there is someone whose existence threatens what we love or what we're working towards, our natural bent is going to be to try to tear that person down and cast that person in a bad light because they're threatening us. And we'll even convince our own hearts, deceive our, our hearts, speak lies to our hearts about that person in order to justify our slander. But the one who can draw near to a holy God speaks truth, both inwardly and outwardly. Look at the latter half of verse 3. Let's continue. He does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. The application here is so broad. You could think of any, any number of examples. He does no evil to his neighbor. This is the sort of the person who has others in mind, who considers their interests above her own. She thinks before she acts and asks herself, will this bring harm or good? to my neighbor. In other words, the one who can draw near to a holy God loves her neighbor. In verse 4, whose eyes a vile person is despised, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. That verse might be 
a bit surprising and maybe a little difficult to hear. But the righteous God, the, his righteous standards, require not only a love for what is good and pure and right, but also a despising of what is wicked and what is impure and what is vile. There is a way to love a hateful murderer and to pray for his conversion and at the same time despise what he is and pray for God's justice. There's a way to bless the one who persecutes you and at the same time not to partner with him. For what fellowship can light have with darkness, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6. On a personal, a personal level, ask yourself, what company do you prefer to keep? Who do you find your interests aligning with most? And who shares your passions? Do you find yourself approving of and showing admiration to the same people that the world approves of and shows admiration to? Or do you honor those who fear the Lord? The one who can draw near to a holy God despises the vile, but honors those who fear the Lord. The last part of verse 4, continuing on, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. This is the kind of person whose word has integrity. She doesn't commit to something flippantly. She doesn't break her promises when it becomes inconvenient to keeping them. She's faithful, even when it's costly to be so. The one who can draw near to a holy God keeps her word. And finally, at the end of verse 5, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. This person is not willing to step on his neighbor for the sake of financial gain. His main concern is not the size of his bank account or his net worth or material comforts, but his decisions are based on the positive good or harm that it brings to a person. So this could mean that you turn down a job promotion or you invest time in a financially counterproductive activity. Why? Because it brings about good for another person. The one who can draw near to a holy God loves people more than money, to put it simply. That brings us to the end of our list. This, is not, this list is not meant to exhaust righteousness. There are more commands that God gives, more standards that he talks about in his law. But it's meant to be representative and to point us toward, okay, what, what are the standards, what kinds of things does the person do who can draw near to a holy God and enter into his presence? These standards flow out of God's own character. And no one can draw near to him who lives in a contrary way to his character. That brings us to our third question, and I think this is the most important question that we're talking about today, uh, which is this. How can we be the kind of person who is able to draw near to the presence of God? We already know the kind of person who can do that. That's what we've just been talking about. We've just unpacked that. It's the one who walks blamelessly, who does what is right. We've seen a glimpse of it. But now the question is, how do we actually become 
the sort of person who walks blamelessly and does what is right? How do we become the sort of the person who is honest and who is considering the interests of others all the time? How do we become faithful, promise-keeping people? People who love our, our neighbor more than the idea of being rich. People who love the church. So we're not asking what you must be right now. We're asking how, how do you get there? Because if you haven't noticed, righteousness does not come naturally to human beings. It's not something that we just decide to do one day. Just wake up and say, you know what, I'm going to be a righteous person. I could not wake up tomorrow morning and say, you know what, I'm going to be the kind of person who makes millions of dollars as a professional athlete. Couldn't do it. It's not in my makeup. Same way, a lion cannot decide to be the kind of carnivore who only eats vegetables. Or a fish can't decide the kind of marine animal who just lives on land. It's not possible. In the same way, a sinful human being cannot decide to be the kind of sinner who is righteous. Scripture tells us that all human beings have rebelled against God and have been corrupted by sin. By our very nature, our hearts are drawn. We're pulled towards sinful appetites. This is all over Scripture. Let me just give you a few verses to back this up. In Psalm 51.5, the author David, same guy who wrote our psalm today, says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying, from the womb I came out in sin as a sinful person. Or Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Or Paul famously says in Romans 7, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. How many of us can resonate with what Paul is saying there? If you hear the standards of God's righteousness and try to meet them in your own strength by sheer willpower, you will be crushed because your heart does not have the capacity to meet God's standards. Or if if you're not crushed, you will simply twist and replace God's commands, God's standards, so that you're able to meet them. And then you become proud. And that was the issue that the Pharisees had during Jesus' day. So, what do we do? Let me briefly talk to three groups of people according to three different reactions that you might be having as you hear this message or as you hear God's standards. The first group that I want to talk to uh, are people who hear the standards of righteousness from this psalm, and they think, check, I've got that. Where's, where's the holy hill? I think I'm ready. If that's what you're thinking when you hear these standards, my request to you would be to reassess yourself. Look more closely, because you haven't yet seen the dark corners of your heart or the brightness of God's glory you had seen that, then you would have a different evaluation of yourself. Uh, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me give you just a few examples. Uh, The rich young ruler, he thought he was righteous 
until Jesus showed him that he loved money more than he loved God. Or the pre-converted Paul, Apostle Paul. He thought he was righteous until Jesus appeared to him and showed him, you're not persecuting blasphemers, you're persecuting the people of God. Or David, the author of our psalm. He thought he, thought he was righteous until the prophet Nathan revealed his adultery and murder. Ask God to expose your sin. You have to know your own sin and the extent of your sin if you would ever be a righteous person. It starts there. The second group of people that I would address are those who hear God's standards of righteousness and feel a heavy and terrible weight. You feel despair because the standards are too high and your sins are too many. If you feel that way, the word for you is rest. This is why Jesus came. Do you realize this, that this is why Jesus came? Not to pour out guilt and shame upon you or to throw heavy demands upon your shoulders, but to give you rest. Jesus came and did the hard labor of every righteous work that God would require on your behalf. That's, that's why he lived a perfect life with no sin. That was for your sake, righteousness that could be given to you. He says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 29, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He earned your righteousness. And not only that, but he went to the cross to bear the penalty for sin. God's wrath has been satisfied, like we sang this morning, because Christ bore it on our behalf. So come to Christ. Let him be your righteousness and the one who makes you righteous. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's an incredible thought, that we can become the righteousness of God and so can be in his presence with no fear. This is the call of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I said earlier that God's presence discriminates between the righteous and the unrighteous, but here's the beauty of the gospel call. It doesn't discriminate at all. It goes out to all alike. It doesn't matter what kind of atrocities you may have committed in your past or what lifestyle you've been living right up to this very moment. The gospel call is still right there before you, inviting to come to Christ and let him be your righteousness. I've got a, a quote from J.C. Ryle. It's a longer quote, but it's wonderful. So stay with me if you can. He says, a word of advice, would you be holy? Would you become a new creature? Then you must begin with Christ. You will do just nothing at all and make no progress until you feel your sin and weakness and flee to him. He is the root and beginning of all holiness. And the way to be holy is to come to him by faith and be joined to him. Do you want to attain holiness? Do you feel this day a real, hearty desire to be holy? Would you be a partaker of the divine nature? Then go to Christ. Wait for nothing. Wait for nobody. Linger not. 
Do not think to make yourself ready. Go and say to him in the words of that beautiful hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked plead to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Put your hope in Christ, and he will give you all the righteousness you need. There's no other way to stand before a perfectly holy God except that you're standing in Christ. That's it. Now, a third group that I would address are, are on the opposite end of the spectrum. If those who feel the weight and the burden of God's standards are here and feel tired and, and burdened by them, over here are the people who hear God's standards and feel carefree. Their thought is, I'm a Christian. I've been forgiven, so I don't need to bother with that stuff. Jesus has already done it. If that is your line of thought, then the word for you is fight. Fight for righteousness. Why, if Christ has done it already? Because if you do not fight for righteousness, and if you let sin have its way with you, you lose a great deal. Uh, For one, you, you have to deal with the consequences of that sin, the messy consequences of sin. Always it brings chaos into our lives when sin is ruling. But secondly, and more importantly, you hinder communion with God. What I mean by that is you hinder the the sweetness and the conscious joy of his nearness and his pleasure of fellowship with him. God's presence is not manifested only in a tent on a holy hill like it was in David's time. When Jesus came, that changed. He says in John 4 to the Samaritan woman, we don't worship on, the time's coming, we will no longer worship on this mountain or this mountain, but the true worshiper will worship in spirit and truth. We can enjoy God's presence wherever we are. We can enjoy communion with God wherever we are. And yet, how many Christians would say today that they don't experience that fellowship? Do you feel disconnected from God? Do you feel like he's far off and distant and that your prayers are hollow? Do you feel like his word is hazy and impotent to effect any change in your life? If that's what you're feeling, if that's the case for you, uh, consider that it could be the result of sin in your life could be that you're no longer pursuing holiness. Are you clinging to something that requires you to, to loosen your grip on Christ? Or looking at something, gazing on something that requires you to look away from Christ? Sin will disrupt fellowship with God. And thirdly, and most sobering of all, if you let go of the fight for righteousness altogether, and you, and you let sin sit unchallenged on the throne of your heart, you could forfeit heaven. I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that. I don't think Scripture teaches that. I'm not saying that you can be separated from Christ after you've been joined to him. Scripture is very clear on that. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. What I am saying is that if you give yourself to sin and you never bear the fruit of righteousness... You're showing that Christ is not actually in you and that you never really had him in you. Uh, whatever, 
whatever claims you may make. Scripture is clear on that. A tree is known by its fruit. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 33. So fight for righteousness. Make your calling and election sure, as Peter puts it. Or look at Hebrews 12, 14. This might be on the screen. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for the holiness that you need to see God. Or Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Working out your own salvation, meaning work out the obedience that belongs to your salvation, even as God works it into you, which is our only hope that he is the one working it into us. This striving, this working, is not in your own strength. I'm not saying that. It's God-dependent effort. It originates from grace, and it's carried out through grace. But it's still effort. Psalm 15 is not merely, merely a description of who is. It's a call to be. The psalm calls us to work towards righteousness in the power and grace of Christ. Our last question, number four, what benefit do we find in the presence of God? We could list a thousand benefits. We could be here all day talking about the benefits of being in God's presence. But we're going to focus just on one particular promise that we find at the conclusion of this psalm. The very end of verse five. He who does these things shall never be moved. That is the promise for those who are in the presence of God. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Chuck preach on Psalm 1, where he talked about the tree that's planted by the stream of water that is steadfast and bearing fruit, and then this other group of people that are called chaff, blown in the wind. Um, in the presence of God, this is, I think, a neat, a neat image. In the presence of God, there is a rich forest of saints. And some are younger, and some are more mature, more developed with wide-spreading branches, but all, all are being nourished. All are bearing fruits and are growing up into steadfastness, and none will ever be removed from its place or from the presence of God. Righteousness is the best long-term investment that you could ever make. Not talking about a man-made, man-earned righteousness, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus and transforms the person to reflect his character. Seek that righteousness first. And whatever else you lose along the way won't matter in the end. None of it's lasting. It's all fleeting. There's no other foundation to build on that is finally and completely secure. Listen to these words from Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them 
will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Where are you placing your hope? Is it, is it in a bank account? Or a relationship? Or a certain kind of job that will allow you to get certain kinds of stuff? Or give you a certain kind of respect with certain people? If any of these things are your foundation, then it's going to be sand in the end. Please don't build your life on these things. In closing, we'll look to David's original question. Who shall sojourn in the tent of the Lord? Who shall dwell on his holy hill? And the answer is, the one who comes to Christ in faith and is covered by his perfect righteousness. The one who, by the grace of Jesus, through faith in him, depending on him, fights for righteousness and purifies himself. The one who, after falling to sin for the millionth time, turns back to God and says, Lord, forgive me. And in the power of the Spirit, gets up and fights again for holiness. That person will grow in Christ-likeness by little, Christ-bought, sweat-drenched, grace-fueled degrees of glory. And he will never be moved. He will be with God secure forever. The righteous person will live in security in the presence of God. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father, you are a holy God. You are set apart from us in your perfect character and your righteousness, and we cannot stand before you. But you have made peace, and you have reconciled us to yourself. You have brought us near through the blood of Christ. You have given us his righteousness when we but turn to him in faith. And I ask that you would open our eyes today to see that Christ is our only hope of righteousness, that we would turn to him. And I pray, Lord, that you would, in your great power, work Christ's righteousness in our life. Lord, that we would reflect your image and people would see your glory. Lord, we thank you for the peace that we have in you and we put our hope in you as a firm foundation. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.